Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom, and also madness and folly. What more can a king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless, for the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man, too, must die. So I hated life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be the wise, a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun, for a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving for which he labors under the sun? All his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the tasks of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. May God bless the reading of his word. Is your adrenaline running? Yeah? How many of you guys have seen that movie before? So, like, maybe 20% of you guys. How many of you guys haven't? Alright, everyone who... That wasn't everyone. Everyone who didn't just raise their hand the first time should have been raising their hand the second time. How many of you guys haven't seen that movie? Yeah, okay. So, what do you think exactly is happening right now in that movie? Craziness. Okay. 
So maybe I'll ask a different question. Why do you think Tom Cruise was trying to get on that plane? And I'll, I'll, we'll do this multiple choice. I'll give you guys three choices. And all of you guys have to pick one, okay? So if you have no idea what the answer is, just throw your hand up with one of them. If you're confused, just throw your hand up. So choice A, um, the President of the United States is on that plane. And Tom Cruise has to get on that plane to rescue him. Choice B, there's a super weapon. And the controls for that super weapon are on that plane. And Tom Cruise has to get there to disable that super weapon. Or choice three, one of Tom Cruise's team has been infected with a virus, and the antidote for that virus is sitting on that plane, and he has to go there and retrieve that, that antidote. So choice A, choice B, choice C. Who says choice A? The, rescue the president. You have to vote for one of them, okay? All right, not that many people. Choice B, disable super weapon. Okay, most of you guys. All right, choice C, uh, the, the antidote for the virus. So most of you guys voted for choice B. So the truth is, I have never watched this movie. So I have no idea. I just made all that up. All right. And what this exercise kind of shows us is that when you jump into the middle of something, it can be kind of hard to understand what's going on, right? I mean, if, if you don't know what has happened throughout the rest of the movie from, from the beginning up until this point, you can draw some pretty bad conclusions as to what's going on. And so as we look at the passage for today in Ecclesiastes, um, it's really difficult to understand what's happening unless we've seen what has happened up until this point in Ecclesiastes. The author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, um, has been making this argument, and we're jumping right into the middle of that argument. And if we, as we read this passage, as exciting as it might be, I mean, it could be as exciting as Tom Cruise trying to get on a plane, if we don't look at the surrounding context, then we can miss the forest for the trees. And those trees, as beautiful as they might be, could cause us to draw a completely wrong conclusion about what that forest exactly looks like. So to help us crack open the text a little bit more, including understanding what it, the passage looks like in its literary context, uh, here's Pastor Tim. Chris is a hard act to follow. <laughs> here's the point. How do we understand a passage like Ecclesiastes, especially when we only have time to consider half of a chapter and we're jumping into the middle of the chapter? So the point that Chris is trying to make and we're trying to make this morning is, is that when you understand Ecclesiastes, you have to understand any particular verse in the context of not only what has gone before, but the entire book. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that the i got a little bit of a reverb up here, Sammy. Can you uh, tone me down a little bit? Sounds like I'm in a toilet. And I don't like preaching from the toilet. I like reading my text messages. Um, okay, so it's a little bit better, but <clears throat> still sounds a little bit swimming there. Okay, it's getting better. So when we go through Ecclesiastes, what we've seen up to this point is that the writer to Ecclesiastes is trying to make sense of life under the sun. He's trying to look out in life and say, okay, it is what it is. So half the time when we read Ecclesiastes, we find that the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, this is how it is. And occasionally he lapses into another perspective and he says, this is how it should be for the people who walk with God and who know God. So when you read Ecclesiastes, you've got to always ask yourself, is he saying, is he just describing what is, or is he saying this is the way 
it should be. So up to this point, even in chapter two, what we've seen as he looks out, he considers life from the perspective of people who try and find meaning in life through pursuing pleasure or through pursuing possessions. Now, how many of you today, and we'll do another raise your hand, how many of you are trying to find meaning in life through pursuing pleasure? Whatever that pleasure is, raise your hands. Let's be honest. Okay, got a few pleasure seekers out here. All righty, good. How many of you are trying to find meaning in your life through possessions, which can be acquired when you have enough money to buy them? Raise your hand. I see some honest people in the back. Okay. The rest of you, are you pursuing meaning of, in life? <clears throat> okay, well, <clears throat> maybe you're going to fall into the passage that we have today because last week we tried possessions, we tried pleasure, and we ended up with meaningless. Those of you who are pursuing pleasure, it's meaningless, it's fleeting, it's here today and gone tomorrow. I heard recent. I heard this week about somebody who's, or who knew someone who went to Thailand, went to a place, had unprotected sex, ended up with HIV. Why? For ten minutes of pleasure. Some people today are pursuing that. Other people are attempting to find life's meaning through possessions. But you know what happens? No matter how many possessions you have, you're faced with the issue of, do you have enough? Somebody asked um, John D. Rockefeller, an oil magnate, how much money, Mr. Rockefeller, is enough? And you know what he said? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And so no matter how many possessions you have, when you have enough. So those who pursue possessions find that their life is meaningless and it's never enough. Those who pursue pleasure find that sometimes it's fleeting and it comes with consequences. Those people who pursue pleasure through getting drunk, there are consequences. One of my best friend's son in high school got his car, went to a party, got drunk, really, really, really drunk. His other friend was riding with him. The drunk friend said he was going to take his other friend home because the other friend was even drunker than he was. Well, they got it in an accident. And my friend's son wasn't hurt, but the other 17-year-old ended up as a quadriplegic. Why? Because of one night of pursuing pleasure. So what I'm trying to say is when we go through Ecclesiastes and we see these big themes, we have to move from what he says to then connecting it into our situation. So what do we have today? We have verse 12. Um, please follow along in your Bibles. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 through 26. Those of you who can't, uh, who don't have it in a Bible in front of you, feel free to turn on your cell phones. I take no offense, but stay off your Facebook, okay? Um, don't be texting anything. Don't be tweeting. I do not allow tweeting during the sermon. Um, you may tweet after my sermon. But <clears throat> take a look and find the Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12. What we see is he's moved from thinking about pleasure. He's moved from considering possessions. And now what does he turn his thoughts to consider? He turns his thoughts to consider, on the one hand, wisdom, and on the other hand, madness and folly. So the first thing I want you to see as we take a look at what, what he's saying is, is that there's a contrast between wisdom and madness and folly. And that contrast helps us realize what the meaning of wisdom is. 
Now, when a lot of you hear the word wisdom or think the word wisdom, you're thinking about the really smart person or something like that. But when we come through uh, Ecclesiastes and read through the Old Testament, often the word wisdom carries with it the connotation of someone who's seeking moral excellence. Wisdom is doing what is right in a way that pleases God. Whereas folly is disobeying God or saying that there is no God at all. So on the one hand, we have him comparing a life of wisdom, and on the other hand, we have him comparing a life of folly. What does he find? Well, the first thing we find in verse 12 is, is that he asks this question. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? Now think about what this means. And this is a problem that we have today in, in our world as well. We always look to the king's successor to solve the problems of the prior king. Okay? Think about what just happened in our last election. Um, when 44 left office, then 45 comes into office, and 45 tries to fix everything that he thinks went wrong during 44's time and to address all the problems. But what political ruler can fix all the problems? What president that we have now or president that we have yet to come can fix poverty, crime in the inner cities, the tax problem, the national debt? So the writer to Ecclesiastes looks at his life and realizes that, you know what? Nobody can fix it. It is how it is. And the king's successor, what more can he do? Only what the guy did before. And did the guy who came before fix the problems? Absolutely not. So he's scratching his head and he says, okay, well, if that's the case, that these problems that we have in our world are always going to be there, then how do we make sense of it? And the first thing he says, as he begins his comparison, is he says, wisdom is better. When you compare a life of wisdom to a life of folly, what do you find? Wisdom is better. He says, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. And then he gives this illustration, verse 14. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads. What does that mean? It means that people who are wise see what the situation is and respond according to wisdom. Whereas those who are fools, they're walking in darkness. They don't have any light. They don't have any direction. And they do stupid things. Now think about it in our life today. Do we have wise people whose lives reflect good? And then do we have fools on the other hand? Absolutely. We have a lot of people out there who are eating too much, drinking too much, smoking too much, sleeping around too much. These are the people who are the fools who are walking in darkness. And then on the other hand, we have the people who are living a careful life. They're trying to please God. They're trying to honor God in their relationships. They see their body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, so they don't want to pollute it with something or eat too much or drink too much. And that's the first thing that he finds. You know what? It's better to be wise than to be a fool. So even though often we're hitting the conclusion that the writer to Ecclesiastes hits, which is that life is meaningless, life is meaningless. In the midst of your meaningless life, don't forget the fact that it's better to live a wise life than a foolish life. Don't ditch the commandments of God and the standards of God as you come into your existential angst of realizing, you know what? What's the second thing he finds out? You know what? Even though wisdom is better, the end of both the wise person and the fool is the same. Verse 14. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. 
The fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. Because ultimately, here's what he's realizing. Even if you try and live a good life, you try and be a good student, you try and get good grades, please your parents because grades are really important to your parents. And then you graduate, you go to a good college, you get good grades, you graduate from there, you get a good job, you get a nice house, you find a nice spouse, and all those things line up that are supposed to line up in, in your life. You know what? Even if you compare your life with the dropout, the person who didn't finish school, the person who's the drunk bum in the streets that you pass as you drive in to Boston City, even if you compare yourself with that person, the end of both is the same. This, too, is meaningless. Verse 16. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. You know, it's even worse than the fact that all of us are just going to die and it doesn't matter if you're living a wise life or a foolish life. You know, what's even worse is the fact that generations from now, nobody's even going to remember your name. Stan, this is what I think about. You know what I do in my spare time? I walk through cemeteries. I do. Um, and I love going to a new city. I remember when I went to, I went to, um, was Seoul, Korea in April of, of uh, 1994. And I was so excited because I was going to a church conference and the conference was meeting um, at, at this church and this church had a cemetery behind it. And I'm like, sweet, I can go read all the tombstones. So during the break time, I went out and I read every single one of the tombstones and I tried to find out about these people whose lives nobody remembers and whose names everyone has already forgotten. And it was a very moving experience. Uh, let me try and, and bring this into your own, your own life right now. I know you think you're important. And I know you think your parents are important. And you might even think that your grandparents were important. But I have a question for you today. Can anybody here in this room name the full name of your great-grandfather on your mother's side? Can anybody do that? Your great-grandfather on your mother's side. Raise your hand if you can do that. I don't have my visor on, so I'm going to give you my lizard eyes. I'm looking at the congregation. Can anybody do that? Remember your great-grandfather's full name on your mother's side. Anybody can do it? Do we have... Okay, come on up. Somebody can do this. Come on up. Come on up. I saw a hand. Come on up. Are you saying there's something wrong with my mic, or are you actually raising your hand? Come on up. No. Do we have a person? What? Oh, sorry. Come on up. Oh, this is my friend Tim. We went to high school together. He dropped in today, and we're very happy to have him. Come on up, Mr. Godby, and tell us. I forgot that you'd be here today. You remember everything. Oh, we have two people who can do it. Okay. Come on Come on up first. <clears throat> Please tell us your full name, and then the name of your full name of your great-grandfather on your mother's side. Uh, Christy Monahan Hartono, and my grandfather is Augustus Espersted. Not your grandfather, your great grandfather. My great grandfather. Okay, great. On your mother's side. On my mother's side. Say it again. Augustus Espersted. Wow, that's sweet. Okay, everybody, give her hands. <laughs> Mr. Gabby. 
My full name is Paul Timothy Godby II. Good grief. And my great-grandfather on my... My mother's great-grandfather was James Clifford Brown Hampton. Whoa. Okay. Well, that's very good. Now sit down. You just... On the one hand, I can say, you just proved me wrong. On the other hand, I can say, you just proved me right, because most of you can't do it. In fact, I would say that there's probably only um, one or two people um, around, and I would think uh, we have one missionary family that our church supports who can do this. Anybody know which missionary family we have who could name not only their great um, their great grandfather on their father's side, but their great great grandfather on their father's side. Anybody know the name of our missionary family who can do that? Stand up. James Hudson Taylor, the first, second, or third? Okay. Okay. Which one is the great? Okay. Think of the low. Uh, think of James Hudson Taylor the fifth my wife taught at Bethany Christian School um, years ago in Taipei, Taiwan. Think of James Hudson Taylor V, who just got married, and I keep in touch with him by Facebook, and he's in the Taiwanese military right now. We need to pray for him. Um, he's thinking about his great-great-grandfather on his father's side. Was that James Hudson Taylor the first or the second? Figure it out. His great-great-grandfather on his father's side. What was it? Right, the first. Okay, so I'm going to move on. But my point is this. Um, (laughs) Did I not illustrate what the writer to Ecclesiastes just said? We remember James Hudson Taylor I. Why? Because he was a famous missionary to China. He was so famous that now we're continuing, and his family has continued to name every son after that. James Hudson Taylor V. The next one will be the sixth. After that will be the seventh. After that will be the eighth. Until Jesus comes back, I'm sure we will have James Hudson Taylors. But the point is, is unless you come from the James Hudson Taylor family and have a line of succession like that, people are going to forget your name and your life is going to mean absolutely nothing a hundred years from now because nobody's going to know your name. And nobody's going to go visit a cemetery and go look around and try and find your tombstone. I got really excited recently before the retreat. Do you all remember our retreat speaker, Dr. Fizenmeyer? seminary teacher at uh, Gordon-Conwell Seminary. I was really excited because we had lunch with him, and he told me uh, that one of the people whose tombstones I'm looking for uh, since I took this position in Boston, he actually knew where it was. In fact, he had preached on top of the man's tombstone who I wanted to find in New England. And I don't know how this came out in conversation, but he shared with me that recently he preached in a church where George Whitfield, one of the evangelists of the Great Awakening, um, was buried under the pulpit right there. So he, here he is preaching on top of dead George Whitfield and his bones. And so he said he would take me and show me where it was. And I got really excited. Why? Because every single one of us in our heart of hearts We want to be known for doing something, don't we? That's one of the reasons why we're working so hard. But the writer to Ecclesiastes faces his life and he says, you know what? It doesn't really matter. Martin Lloyd-Jones used to love to use the same sermon illustration about this to point out. He said that the most famous tombstone he could ever think of was this one. John Jones, born a man died a grocer. And that's all anybody ever remembered, but they don't even remember who John Jones was. But we want to be remembered. We want to 
do something of significance. We want to be known as a grocer, or we want to be known as a doctor, or we want to be known as a missionary, but ultimately we're not going to be known as anything because our life is going to pass away. And so in this passage, what we have is the writer of Ecclesiastes saying, try pleasure, doesn't work, try possessions, it doesn't work. Try even searching for wisdom and living a good life so that everybody's going to remember your name. And you know what? People are going to forget your name. So then what's the purpose in it all? And how do you emotionally respond to that great existential moment that he wants to bring us to where you realize that ultimately your life doesn't have any lasting meaning because you're only here for a time and then you're gone and then you're forgotten. So how does that make you feel? Notice what, oh, somebody said what? Somebody said what? I thought I heard somebody say happy. Um, I hope that doesn't make you feel happy. Here's the point. How does that make you feel? Verse 17. He hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to him. Verse 18. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And you know what? I don't know whether the person who comes after me will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. I grew up in a small little town called Titusville, Florida. Um, it's only famous for two things. Dixie Crossroads Restaurant and the Space Center is right across the river from Titusville, Florida. But, I mean, if you come up from Titusville, certainly you have a meaningless life. But I shouldn't have said that because my friend Tim is here. Uh, but we did have one person from Titusville, Florida who was famous. We had one man when I was growing up. My dad used to subscribe to a magazine called called the Forbes magazine. And each year, they would come out with my dad's favorite issue, which was the Forbes 400, which had the 400 richest people in, in, the, whole, um, in the whole United States. And we had a man from Titusville who appeared as number 117 in Forbes 400 in one of the issues that I remember my father saved and I devoured as a child. And it, it was a man who got filthy rich through selling oranges. And he lived down the street from me, and he had this huge house, and he had this really cool wife who had uh, jet black hair, but it was tinged with some gray, and she looked really cool. And she drove this limo that looked like Cruella DeVille's um, limo in 101 Dalmatians. And every day I would sit, I would sit in my front yard and watch her, and she'd drive by. There she went, Cruella DeVille, with all of her money. And her limo was so big, it just kept on going. And I'm thinking, when does it stop? Okay, these people had more money than anybody I knew under the planet. But here's what happened. And I loved the man who made the money. And I loved him. Why? Because I sold band candy. And every time I had to sell band candy um, to try and win a TV set or something, he bought a lot of it. So I, I loved him dearly. But unfortunately, he died... Um, and when he died, I had a big problem because nobody else wanted to buy as much band candy. Um, but when he died, and then his wife died, they left all their millions to their two kids. And guess what? Within ten years, all the money was gone. One of the kids was a drug addict and in prison. The other one squandered all the money and then had to get a real estate license and then sell real estate in order to make ends meet. Cruella DeVille's car was, was sold. The house 
sort of went down in values, sort of went down in looks as well. The landscaping that used to look like the Garden of Eden in the middle of Titusville, Florida, ended up looking like a little shoddy place where they really needed to prune the palm fronds. And this is what happens. Some of you are working hard. You're working super hard. You're working amazingly hard. You want to make all this money. You want to have all these things. You want to get the smile of your parents saying, good job, son. And you know what? You're going to die. You're going to leave it to your kids. And they might lose it within 10 years, just like the man in my neighborhood. And that leads you to what he says in verse 20. My heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. Let me ask those of you who are students, how many of you have pulled an all-nighter studying for something or finishing a project? Raise your hand. If you're a student and you've pulled an all-nighter studying, okay? Now put your hands down. You're in the middle of Ecclesiastes right here. Don't you see it? Even at night, your minds do not grip. Do not rest. Why? Because you're toiling. For you students, your toil is your studies. For the rest of us, our toil is our jobs. But he says, your work all the days of your life is grief and pain. So the question we have to face at this point is this. How do you deal with it? How do you find meaning in the midst of the meaninglessness and the difficulty of your life? He tells you in verse 24. He hits you Square in in the head. Now, not with a statement of it is how it is, but now a statement of this is how it should be. And you know what he says? Look at verse 24. This is what we need to pay attention to. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction, not futility, not meaninglessness in their own work and toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. You know what he begins to see? Is that when you shift your attention from just your life under the sun, like everybody else's life under the sun, and nobody thinking about God, that you bring God into the middle of your life, you bring God into the middle of your work, you bring Jesus Christ, His only Son, into the middle of your heart, and you know what you find? This too, I see, is from the hand of God. You find... That without Jesus, without him, without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases God, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, the one who hasn't repented, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Let me ask you today, in the midst of your toil, in the midst of your studies, in the midst of the challenge of your life today, do you have that happiness that he speaks about? Do you have that enjoyment to eat and drink and to receive all that God has given to you, including your job, and to thank the God in whose presence you live and move and breathe and have your being? Do you welcome all that you have in your life as a gift from Him and you enjoy it? You know what? I think some of you don't enjoy your lives. I think your lives is simply the difficulty that He's pointing out. It's meaningless, and you end up sometimes in a point of despair. But what God wants us to see today is, is if you have God in your life, if you have Christ as your Savior, then you can say, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that your work is not in vain because it's in 
the Lord. So the question I leave with you today, brothers and sisters, is do you have that enjoyment in your life? Because you're in the Lord? Or do you have that sense of meaninglessness, frustration, and discouragement and unhappiness? Because you think sensibly that it doesn't really matter because no matter how good you are, no matter how much you do, on one day, you're going to die. The passage ends with an interesting sentence. And I have to spend one second um, giving you the context before I close. After contrasting a life of meaninglessness without God with a life of happiness and enjoyment and pleasure in all that we do because we're in God, then he ends on a funny note. He says, this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So what is he talking about? Is he talking about the person who he mentions earlier in the earlier clause, the sinner um, who, to whom God gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God? Or is he talking about that even the person who finds enjoyment in God is going to die and all of it is meaningless? Well, in the context of the entire book, he's basically saying that even if you enjoy life in the Lord, you can too, you can too at times face that thought in your mind that ultimately it's meaningless because you're going to die. What does this passage do? It forces us to have to look past life in the world as it is to life as it now is in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So ultimately speaking, Ecclesiastes throws us, compels us, and forces us to see our lives now from one of two perspectives. The empty tomb or from our own vantage point. Where are you today? Does your life have meaning because of the resurrection of Jesus? Or is your life headed towards a point of despair? Let us pray. Thank you, Lord God, that our lives are not meaningless. That we move towards a point of seeing our Savior face to face. And even now, as we try and do all that we do for Jesus, through Jesus, and unto his ultimate praise and glory, we pray that we will sensibly be delivered from looking at life from any other vantage point other than yours. Lord, for those who are struggling with a sense of despair and discouragement, I pray you'd give them the hope of the resurrection. And for those of us who are seeking to live out the Christian life in the context of those who are chasing the idols of the day, I pray, Lord, that we can be examples that the life of wisdom that we're trying to live today is not the only life that there is because we look to you, Jesus, our resurrected life our loving Savior. We pray in your name. Amen.